He was the face of evening news for well over two decades. And Walter Cronkite always ended his newscasts with exactly the same statements for those 20 plus years. Those of you who are old enough will remember what he said. He got done with the news and Walter looked at the camera and said, and that's the way it is. June 12th, 1977. And that's the way it is. Today's newscast could not end with that statement. They would have to say, this is the way we want you to think it is. We've lived into an age of fake news. But fake news is nothing new. Fake prophets have been around for a long time. And the struggle that Granny Clampett was having, identifying if the doctor knew what he was talking about, is the same struggle that we can have when we listen to men like I am right now. Are they telling us the truth? Are they a false prophet? This is a stern warning that Jesus gives. And I want you to look at it with me in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we're rounding out the Sermon on the Mount, and he's getting close to finishing it, and his topic at hand in this chapter is the straight gate and the narrow gate, and the wide gate, the straight or narrow gate and the wide gate. And obviously he's telling us to enter at the narrow gate and avoid at all costs the wide gate, which leads to destruction. Now, destruction in this verse doesn't mean hell. Many times these verses are used evangelistically to encourage the, the, the lost person to enter in at the narrow gate of Jesus and avoid the wide gate of rejecting Christ and ending up in hell. But the sermon isn't for the non-Christian, it's for the believer. Well, why such a hard word as destruction, and why the warning of false preachers to the Christian? Because once we enter into Christ, and Christ enters into us, there is the possibility in the path until we get to glory that we will enter that wide gate that not that we're going to go to hell because our eternity is set, but that we might miss out and lose out on all that Christ purchased for us at the cross. He gave us victory over sin, victory in this life. He means for us to have a joy-filled life, not free from problems, but certainly a peace in the midst of it. He died to set our feet upon a rock, so that nothing can shake us, as we just sang about, a firm foundation. He died in order to forgive us all of our sin and not to struggle with guilt. He purchased for us life abundant, and to miss out on that as a believer, as a believer, because you can miss out on it, is destruction. That which leads not to the life that is in us, but away from that life. Anything less than that life in its fullness can be described as a wide gate and as a destructive path. And we are in danger of going down that wide path. 
as believers. So I want you to look at Matthew chapter 7 and look at the warning here. He says in Matthew chapter 7, beware of false prophets. Beware of those who, well, he noticed, he mentions they are in sheep's clothing. But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So they're hard to detect. Sometimes hard to spot. We tend to, we tend to migrate toward personalities and people. And sometimes there's more below the surface than we realize. What's a sheep? Sheep is warm and cuddly. Maybe some of you were hugged by a sheep this morning. But if you looked a little closer, you saw that the sheep wasn't as warm and cuddly and soft and inviting as you first thought. How many of us have been burned by this type of thing? There's two schools of thought about false prophets, and I want to be clear about what those two schools of thought are. I don't think we need to choose which school. I think, I think we can take both of them. First of all, a false prophet can be someone who preaches the truth. I mean, line by line, verse by verse, they're hammering the truth. And yet behind the scenes, there's a second life. There's an ongoing life of sin that they keep covered for many, many years perhaps. Sometimes even after their death we find out. Preachers who pound the pulpit and preach the truth, and yet through all those years they were doing that, they were abusing children in their study. They were pedophiles is what they were. They were false prophets. Preachers who preach the truth. You can't, you can't pick apart their doctrine. You can't take their doctrine and say, oh, you're wrong here, you're wrong there. They're right on the money. And yet after their death, there was a secret passageway found between their study and an office where they were with their church secretary. For all those years, they were preaching to us. Karen went to a Bible college for many years that was kind of restrictive in nature. She was caught holding hands with a boy and rebuked for that by the church faculty. They did it under the table, but somebody saw them and must have reported them. Years later, that very same college, the professors and teachers, many of them, not all, but many of them, went off into lives of sin. False prophets who preach the truth, but your life behind the scenes is not what you say up here. That's one school of thought, and I think it's bona fide. I think that's, that's valid. The second false prophet is harder to see in some ways. They preach error, but their life isn't really a bad life. You can't point out sin, but what they're telling people is leading them into bondage. And what they're doing is persuading people to take the wide gate versus the narrow gate. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Because if you're going to understand what false prophets are and who they are, you need to understand what the wide gate is versus the narrow gate. Because this warning is, is right on the heels of the wide gate and the narrow gate. Because Jesus knew that as we stood at those two gates as believers we have the possibility of listening to these guys and going down the wide gate that doesn't free us and liberate us in Christ. What is the wide gate? Listen carefully. 
It is any preaching and teaching that adds anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is to tell the believer he must do something to gain the blessings of God. It is to tell the believer that something must be added. Yes, he saved you by grace, and he expects you to live in this way and that way, and this is the the line you need to toe. Now, there are a lot of things that push us toward that wide gate. One of them is a persuasive message that the gospel is about you. And they'll talk about the cross, and they'll talk about Jesus. I listened to a sermon online just this past week, and the preacher said several things about the cross and about the crucifixion, and Jesus wants to do this and that. And then along with that, here it comes, a statement of human effort. A statement that let us know that we've got to do something and add to a finished work. Maybe it's a message that talks about Jesus Christ, but then adds to it the the idea that Jesus came to fill your wallet with money and your body with health. A prosperity gospel. A gospel that centers itself on us. These preachers will never talk about sin. They talk very little about sin and sinfulness in the lives of the believers. They will get on national TV and say, I don't judge anybody. If they want to preach that, I'll preach that. I don't judge anybody. I, I, God didn't call me to judge. Well, they have a hard, hard lot to, to read through the judgments that Jesus Christ gave these Pharisees, scribes, and false teachers. Oh, let's not get muddled down in doctrine. Let's not get, oh, let's not divide our, Jesus was dividing right here when he says, watch out for these guys. Well, you know, I don't want to talk about sin, you know, God, I I just, I'd rather keep a positive, positive message. There is no more positive message than to talk about Jesus Christ and the freedom from sin. There's two avenues they avoid. First of all, they avoid the idea that the cross was meant to save us from the penalty of our sins. That is it a vicarious atonement. That what he did on the cross was in our place for our sinfulness. You want to see how bad sin is? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. He died to forgive us of sins. It was that bad. But there are those, and we don't hear of them much because they don't travel in our circles, They talk about the cross as being a wonderful example of God's love for us. Or a wonderful example of of forgiveness. A wonderful example of sacrifice, that we ought to sacrifice like Jesus did on the cross. The cross was nothing more than a bloody experience that Jesus went through paying for my sin and your sin, and we are sinners. That's all the cross says. It says... This is what you deserve. This is what I'm doing for you. It addresses it slap in the face. And But secondly, even more deceptive is the idea that we as believers, they don't talk about flesh and sinfulness in the lives of you and I. Why, preacher, be so negative with us? Because what's in us must be dealt with and has been dealt with. And until we see that in our flesh dwells no good thing, can we ever embrace all of Christ and all of him? 
And these, I'm going to tell you, these words are so subtle. And we talk, and I've preached them years and years past. It made me a false prophet. I hope not. I grew out of that understanding where Jesus, we're told Jesus lives in us to strengthen us so we can conquer sin. That's a broad path. That's a wide path. It doesn't work. My stomach is a little nauseous still. It probably will be for the rest of the day. I walked out in the foyer between, during Sunday school to walk up in the booth, and there was a large cockroach that was making his way across the church foyer. He was so big, I almost gave him a, a car to fill out. But I thought, oh dear, this is a terrible impression to those who have come to visit today that we have cockroaches in the building. So I, I walked over to him, and I lifted my shoe, and I put it down, and he diverted to the left. I wouldn't be overcome, over, overthrown by that. So I quickly did like that. I'm telling you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in a cockroach. I'm telling you, there's enough entrails in there. You could do surgery on a cockroach. I cleaned it up so nobody slips on the, I think it's dried by now. That's what's inside of a cockroach. That's what's inside of us. Nothing but sin. That's why we, you don't get to that place, you want to embrace the fullness of Jesus Christ, and he's the only one that can rescue. Jesus didn't die so I could have power over sin. That makes me the center of the gospel. He died so he could have victory over my sin, living in and through me. See the difference? It's a fine cutting line difference. He died in order to separate me from sin. Separate me from sin. We had a work day at our homeowners association. We cut some crepe myrtles. Some of them big enough to be trees. They're like this. We cut them all off. They're coming back. Okay? They look pretty bare right now, but there's life still in the crepe myrtle. They're still in the root. So we think to ourselves, well, if I want to get rid of the crepe myrtle, we just take an axe and, and beat up the root. That's not Christianity. Christianity isn't us by the power of the Spirit taking an axe and cutting off the root of sin. Ours is an understanding that the root has already been cut by the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the narrow thing that leads to life. But the wide gate offers all those alternatives that end in frustration. In fact, the gate is so narrow that only Christ in me can make it through. Did you catch that? Only an understanding and an embracing and a seeing that is only Christ in me and I am in Jesus Christ that gets me through the narrow gate. He goes on and he says, look, these guys are, are wickedly deceptive. You will recognize them by their fruits. It takes a while sometimes for fruit to come out on a bush. But eventually you see it, don't you? Yep. By the way, always keep your eye on the preacher. I have no problem with you keeping an eye on me. I mean, I don't want you in the backyard looking in the back windows. <laughs> but our lives should be an open book. I don't have a second life. Karen doesn't have a second life. No one on staff here has a second life. Keep an eye on them. 
always. Any preacher who isn't living that second life has no problem when you're watching him and listening. Listen to what I preach and teach and make sure it's there. I have no problem with you questioning that of what I teach. You'll know them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Fruit being either the person's life or their doctrine. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And I'll tell you why I can marry the two schools together, because what a man preaches and believes will eventually come out in his life. It's a combination of both. It's both schools. You preach that law, you preach that death, eventually you're going to collapse under the load of it, and your life is going to be sinful. That's destruction. Much destruction has happened because of that wide gate. And preachers who have taken many congregations down that wide gate, setting them up for failure, setting them up for the disastrous blow of a preacher or someone on staff collapsing under sin and hurting a lot of people. It's been years and years, but one of the largest, before First Baptist was a big church here in town, there was another church, Beaver Street Baptist. Preacher got shot by the woman he was having an affair with. And that church, gone. Happens all the time. I only share that because it's an old illustration and an old story. There are more recent, and there will be more recent, unfortunately. It's the way it is. That's why Jesus said, keep your eye open, beware. Verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is not the fire of hell. This is the fire of a destroyed ministry and hurt lives. God's wheels of justice turn slowly, but they do turn. And people are found out. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. You will see it by their fruits. Then he gives another warning in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into my kingdom, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) No verbal thing. No crying out and no words. And I think this has reference to all of us, but especially the preachers. You know, I watch a baby about once a week, and that baby has to be watched constantly because she will put anything into her mouth. Anything is on, I mean, before she comes, I'm picking up little wrappers and little stuff because the minute she got it, she's going to, and she's pretty good about it, but all kids do it. When you're brand new saved, you tend to put into your mouth anything that looks impressive to you. Believe any teaching that you read in a book, any slick-looking guy on the TV that can really chuck the corn. We tend to think, oh, that's good stuff. Oh, pray, I pray that. Amen. They can say Lord, and they can say Lord, and they can say Lord all they want. Eyes open, ears open. Don't be hypercritical, but my goodness, be, be aware. They may not be what you think they are. They may be that cockroach when you step on them. 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in Oh, there it is. You've got to do the will of God to get to heaven. Jesus clarifies that in John chapter 6, and he said, this is the work of God, that you believe on the Son. This is the will of God, that you believe on Jesus Christ. There it is all together. The will of God is Jesus Christ and believing and trusting on him completely Finished work, it's all done, you embrace him, you reach a place where it's all him and none of you, that's the will of God. That's the place. It isn't doing the things, and I've, you know, preachers can grab this, oh, you need to do the will of God. It's the will of God that you submit to the authority of this church. It's the will of God that you're on visitation five times a week. It's the will of God that you, and they got whatever they want to tell you. Jesus said the will of God is that you believe on Jesus Christ. I was reading this past week, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and um, one of the statements he made, made that I disagreed with within the flow of his explanation, which was excellent on these false prophets, Martin Lloyd-Jones. If I had him face-to-face, I think we could talk through this, but he said, you know, there are some say, just look away to Jesus. Just look away to Jesus. That's all you need to do. And he referenced, by saying that, you're not pointing at sin. But the very opposite is true. When we look to Christ alone, we see the sin within us. We are the most fully aware of our helplessness when we're embracing him. He goes on in in, in verse 7, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. (laughs) They're still saying it. They get in front of him and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Man, we collected collected the offerings. We preached hard. We gave everything. Notice, didn't we cast out demons in your name and do not a few, not just works in your name. We did many mighty works. What's the emphasis of these guys? The many mighty works. The demons they're casting out. They're merchandising Jesus Christ. That's what they do. They get the offering by throwing Jesus' name and they say all the things and do all the things they do and they're using his name to merchandise a ministry to collect money and ride around on planes and look impressive and everybody go, oh, you're the best. Do I sound harsh to you? Do I sound a little over the top? Because Jesus Christ said, beware of these men. We're all sheep. You know, sheep aren't the most, and I'm in that group. We're not the most impressive. Have you ever been to a a circus and watch a sheep in one of the three rings? They they don't do anything. They, They just follow each other around. And we all contend to do that as sheep. I'm not amazed that, I guess this is a personal insight of mine, I'm not amazed that there are false prophets and these guys get up and say these things. I'm kind of amazed that there are thousands who sit out there and like the guy in the back of your, back in your car, the little, little robot, the, they're doing this, they're doing that. And they say the most elementary thing. And they're like, oh, that's the, that's the greatest thing I ever heard. I'll tell you He says in verse 23, 
Then I will declare to them. Notice, I knew you once and I don't know you now. I never knew you. It isn't that they were saved and now they're lost because of what they did. Because once you're born again, you're always born again. The life is in you and can't be kicked out. These men never knew Christ. And yet they did all these mighty, mighty works. Casting out demons. Selling prayer cloths. They did all that kind of stuff. And yet Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. You workers of lawlessness. What a warning. What a warning. You begin to examine this wide gate and this narrow gate and you'll probably come to the conclusion like I did that there are a lot more false prophets than you think. And we're not to be intimidated by that. But we are to center ourselves under the preach, and we're not to run away from preaching. Let's just abandon the whole preaching thing. I guess I'd be out of a job if we did that. God wants preachers. He wants the scripture expounded. And like Walter Cronkite, he wants us at the end of the message to say, and that's the way it is for all eternity. Give you three things, and then I'll push you out there in the midst of all that's going on. Number one, there is nothing outwardly alarming about them. They do not, I was very clear with my wolf in sheep's clothing this morning, not to growl at anybody. I say be very accommodating, hugging, friendly, because there's nothing outwardly alarming about these men at all. And we can be, by their dynamic personality, be swept into a fold and listen to garbage and be led to the wide gate. Number two, their bad fruit is either wrong doctrine that they're teaching or it's a wrong life that they're living. Sometimes the fruit takes a while to come out of the vine and we find out. It doesn't mean we're not to trust those who preach the word of God, but we are to trust them with eyes wide open. Or it's doctrine that gets away from the cross of Jesus Christ and the teaching and truth that Christ alone in us is sufficient for all things, adding anything to the work of Jesus Christ. And number three, they use Jesus Christ as a remedy. And I want to talk just a few minutes about this because I want you to see this for what it is. They use Jesus Christ for the remedy of every ill that people suffer under. He's the great chain breaker. He's the great solution to all of our problems. Got an ache in your bone? Jesus died to cure you of that ache. No, you might take that ache right into glory and then you'll lose it in glory. He died to make us financially independent of anybody and have plenty of money, plenty of blessings. And if you're not blessed in that way, it's because you're disobeying Jesus Christ. He's a remedy. We do mighty works in his name. We cast out demons. Now, that's a little confusing, and let me tell you why. Because Jesus did come 
to cleanse us of our sin. He did come to give us victory over sin. But the purpose wasn't us. The purpose was his life victorious in us. Because Jesus is simply a merchandised remedy for everyone's cures and everyone's woes centers us as the primary object of the gospel, not the Son of God. It has to be Christ and Christ alone. That's why the gate is so narrow and that's why few actually find it. Because you can't carry anything else with you through that gate. No effort, no philosophy, no Jesus plus this and plus that. Not Jesus plus me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer exist. Christ lives in me. That's the firm foundation. Caleb led us in, in singing. That is the straight and narrow gate of what you need to hear when the preacher opens his mouth. And that's the way it is.